Czar J. Rushduni, Easy Chair Number 104, August the 24th, 1985. Today we have here myself, Otto Scott, Mark Rushduni, and John Saunders, and we're going to discuss a very important subject the breakdown of law. Before we begin the discussion, I want to share with you a few things that uh, tell us why the subject is so relevant. For example, the Washington Times for Wednesday, August the 21st, tells us that uh, the novelist Dominic Dunn is in a rage, is writing a novel to express his feelings. His daughter was murdered a few years ago in 1982. His daughter, Dominique Dunn, who was an actress, was murdered by someone who was taken to court and convicted and now may be free fairly soon. In fact, the man will be getting out probably in a year. And what uh, Mr. Dunn says is that he very often feels murderous. He would like to murder that young killer when he gets out of prison next year. But he says he realizes only too well that if I really murdered Sweeney, I'd get a bigger sentence than he got. He's also sickened by the fact that uh, the judge decided to keep Sweeney's record of physical abuse against women from being introduced into the court trial. Mr. Dunn has written about the matter in Vanity Fair as well as now in this interview in the Washington Times. Is this unusual? Far from it. I've encountered in my travels all too many cases of young women, virgins, who were raped. The rapist either got off scot-free or with a very light term. Records of previous rapes by the man could not be introduced into testimony. But every effort was made to impugn the morality of the raped girl, to imply that she was probably promiscuous, and much more. Now, this is hardly justice. Let me share a few things more with you. In the National Review for August 23, 1985, an article that I'm going to read, the title is Liability Nightmare. Quote, item, A man sticks his two-year-old son's head between the running blades of a ceiling fan 
and then sues the manufacturer for failing to warn him the child might be injured. Item. A company that had manufactured textile machinery for 136 years goes out of business because of the cost of liability lawsuits over equipment it had manufactured decades earlier. Item. After deciding that a drug a woman had taken during pregnancy was not responsible for her child's birth defects, a jury awarded her damages to help defray medical costs of the child's future care. These horror stories called by Heritage Foundation researchers show why product liability law has become a menace to more than just the Manvilles and United Carbides of the world. Even without a single obvious disaster, the case-by-case costs of litigation can drive small companies to the wall. Heritage analyst Milton Coppola says 20% of the cost of an ordinary stepladder is traceable to past, present, and future liabilities. Sad to say, the horror stories are not mere flukes. Each one illustrates a police, uh, a principle of law. The ceiling, the ceiling fan case is just one example of how courts are disallowing the traditional defense of contributory negligence. Another such case involved a man who strapped a refrigerator to his back and ran a stunt foot race. One of the straps failed, and he collected one million dollars from the strap manufacturer, and so on and on. And the point made is that the big winners are the lawyers, not the plaintiff. Worse yet, the article goes on to call attention to the fact that some vaccines, old standard vaccines, do have side effects. These side effects appear in a small number of cases. Well, because of the lawsuits in those cases, now there are all kinds of lawsuits. And so what we are seeing is the problem of orphan vaccines. And these are likely to be so watered down that they will neither create side effects nor cure anyone. We have to grant that there are risks in this world. We cannot have a risk-free world. Let me give one concrete personal example. The smallpox vaccine has apparently been a major factor in eliminating smallpox. There are no cases now. On the other hand, over the years there have been side effects from the smallpox vaccine. I was vaccinated as a boy. I think I was about five or six. It made me very ill. My arm, where I was vaccinated, the whole arm swelled to the point that 
I could not fit into my nightgown. I had to wear my father's shirt, and I filled it. Now, it was serious. I was in a critical condition. There were such instances. Mine was not isolated. But smallpox is eliminated. Perhaps it may have killed me. Perhaps it killed a handful across the world, but it saved millions of lives. Today, this will no longer be possible in the future if the present type of liability situation continues. One more item, and then we'll open up the discussion. This is from the Reason magazine for September 1985. A judge in Paulsboro, New Jersey, presented an interesting choice to the parents of two hooky-prone boys. Either spend 273 days in jail because of their son's truancy or have them declared incorrigible and let the state teach the kids the value of an education. The parents opted for prison and kindly Judge David Keiko released them after week saying they'd learned their lesson. The boys, 13 and 14, stayed in foster homes while mom and dad learned all about compulsory education. The parents had claimed they brought their boys to school each day, but the slightly built youngsters would cut out because they were routinely assaulted by other students. Kiko told the parents the kids had brought the assaults on themselves because they have wise mouths. No one will accuse Kiko of that, unquote. (laughs) One of the remarks I hear as I travel across country and meet with various groups and hear horror stories about judges is the remark, somebody ought to start shooting the judges. Well, the tragic fact is that violence against judges is increasing. I was in a courtroom in a Christian school case. It was a new courthouse building built with federal funds. The seats for the spectators occupied the back third of the room. The table for the counsel and the state attorney uh, were towards the back end of the room and across a great empty space sat the judge on his bench. And I remarked about that, all that empty space. What was the reason for it? And I was told this was because increasingly judges were being assaulted. And by having a large empty space, before some angry person could get to the judge, the bailiff had a chance to uh, stop him or uh, knock him down with his billy club. That's the situation. And in a sense, the judges, by departing from common sense, have brought it on themselves. The roots of this are, of course, 
in the transition of law from a biblical to a humanistic foundation. Otto, as we go around now, why don't you begin with what you'd like to say about this whole breakdown of law? Well, it's not unprecedented. The great major historical example is the French Revolution. The pre-revolutionary period was marked by a shift in the French judges when agitation started against the powers of the crown, the judges in the courts of France began to side with the demonstrators against the king. And that made the judges and the courts of France very popular for a time with the revolutionaries. Just as the Warren Court here in the United States was very popular with the left wing, because it sided with the left wing in many of its rulings. Now, as the courts went along with the revolution in France, the disorders increased. They didn't abate. They increased. The judges were the heroes of the fight against the autocracy of the crown. The judges were paraded around as fighters and defenders of the rights of the people. But once the king was deposed, once the king was set aside, the courts were astonished to find themselves under attack. And what was established was people's courts. And the people's courts began to apply the terror. Now, the same phenomenon arose again in Germany in the 20s the courts began to give way to the pressures of the socialist government of the Weimar Republic. And before a judge was sentenced a criminal, and you have to understand that crime in the 20s in Germany became phenomenal. Belitho wrote a book very interesting book called Murder for Profit, and one of the cases in it was a butcher of Hamburg, and he described in passing the condition of Hamburg at that time, and it reads like New York, it reads like Los Angeles, it reads like Detroit. Unbelievable pornography, vice of every sort, and a great many hundreds of thousands of homeless young people wandering around serving as prostitutes, both male and female. One of the individuals who preyed upon these people was the murderer who was known as the Butcher of Hamburg because he sold the meat from the cadavers to the butcher shops of Hamburg. Now, at that point, in the Weimar Republic, which is now being called by some as a period of great creativity and intellectual advancement, the Athens of the period and so forth. At that point, the psychiatrists had such an influence in German law and German courts that before the judge would apply a sentence, he would confer with the psychiatrist. And it wasn't called a sentence, it was called treatment. When Adolf Hitler was arrested 
for leading an abortive rebellion in, uh, I believe it was Munich, I'm not sure, he was allowed to use the court as a podium for political speeches, and he was uh, sent for a very short length of time. This is for mounting a rebellion in, its, in which men were shot dead. The beer hall push, they call it. He was sent to Lonsberg Castle to serve his sentence. And in the castle, he occupied an opulent suite. He had secretaries. He, he was able to dictate his book to, uh, I believe it was Rudolf Hess, and so forth. The courts, in other words, became uh, uh, places where revolutionary rhetoric was mounted with the permission of the judges. And, of course, we all know what happened to German law, and we all know what happened to the German society, because the function of the courts, the function of the judiciary, is to protect the people against people like Adolf Hitler, not to allow them a place from which to promote their policies. Well, the courts of the United States, in my opinion, have joined the social revolutionaries here, they have promoted, they have used social scientific uh, studies, some of which have later been proven to have been doctored, and the authors of some of which have recanted. They've used some of these studies as a basis for sweeping changes in our constitutional uh, rights and regulations. It is now an open an accepted thing that the Constitution of the United States is whatever the court decided to be. So therefore we have a rubber Constitution which can be stretched or distorted to cover anything whatever that any uh, Supreme Court wants to rule. However, the matter has descended from the Supreme Court to the District Court. At one time a constitutional ruling was so rare by the Supreme Court and had such widespread influence that Theodore Roosevelt, when he ran for the presidency in 1912 on the Bull Moose Party, had in his program one platform calling for a national referendum to either vote up or down any constitutional ruling by the Supreme Court because he said, otherwise we are going to be dictated to by nine people who were not elected. Now, he called that the, uh, the law of constitutional return, I believe. I've forgotten now just exactly how he expressed it. But Lincoln, before him, had said, we cannot allow the court to be the uh, final determinant of anything that's very crucial. Of course, he said the courts have changed their mind in the past and will change their mind in the future. But he said, we cannot allow the courts to determine the course of the nation. That's up to the judgment of the people. Well, of course, now we have district judges making constitutional ruling. This is the lowest level of the Supreme, of the, of the federal judiciary. We have judges across the country who most people don't even know who they are, where they came from, what they do. There's no uh, general and popular record kept of what the courts are ruling. The press covers the White House. The press covers Congress. But the press doesn't cover the courts. When it gives you a, an item, a news item, saying the federal courts rule today, 
most of the time you, they don't even say who the judge is, where he came from, or anything else. None of this is covered. We have a judiciary which is operating, practically speaking, in the shadows. And, of course, there's a very good reason why the people are angry at, uh, at the outcome of the case, because you cannot say when you go into a court whether you're a victim, whether you're a complainant, whether you're a defendant, what the outcome is going to be. Now, we, this carries us back to the whole question of equity and justice, in my opinion. There's, a, there's an old historical theory to the effect that when a civilization becomes so complex that the average man can no longer see the workings of justice, when he can no longer see the evildoer punished, he can no longer see the innocent protected, he can no longer see people of substance and equity become successful, when he sees the unworthy elevated, we cannot see the connection between right and wrong and the results of right and wrong in the society around him. He tends then to believe that everything is manufactured out of connections, out of influence, out of secret forces and conspiracies, out of uh, fickle destiny, out of fortune, out of chance. When a civilization is in that situation, it's in very serious trouble because what the average man cannot rationalize, he cannot defend. And what cannot be defended cannot be maintained. Mark, would you like to comment now? Well, it's something that's already been touched on, is that when you hear this subject talked about in in barber shops, around coffee tables, people recognize that we're in a, a problem. They see liability cases, or they'll know of somebody who won a, a judgment, or very often a settlement because companies don't want to go to court, so they'll settle for a ridiculous amount in a case they don't want to spend legal fees on. Um, they'll talk about murderers who were released because they hear about it, and everybody recognizes this. But they look at they look at the wrong things. They look at crime. They look at um, uh, violence instead of looking at it as the breakdown of law, which is um, a symptom of the breakdown of civilization. And that's why at, at the heart of the problem with our laws is um, the problem with our civilization, which is a moral one. It's a breakdown of the Christian influence on our culture as a whole. And that is, of course, that's part of the function of, of Chalcedon, is to approach this from uh, a Christian perspective and rebuilding society. It, um, uh, you, you mentioned New York. I was reading just a short time ago on the optimism that people viewed America a hundred years ago, that America was viewed as a new civilization. And, uh, with one of great promise, New York was looked to as the city of of the civilization of the future, and now it's looked on as a moral and political uh, quagmire. It, it's looked on as an embarrassment to America, and um, so we have to see the, the problem 
in a larger perspective as a breakdown of our of our culture as a whole. John, well, sir, I've um, uh, I've been doing a lot of study recently in history, philosophy, and theology, and uh, I've noticed the connection uh, between what what you and Otto and, and Mark have said in a, in a very long-term sense, the connection between ideas and consequences. And it's not, it's not important that uh, a person merely believe that absolutes exist. It's more important that he believe that the, that the absolutes are, are authoritative and apply not just to the other guy, but to himself as well. And that's the key to what Otto was talking about when he mentioned equity. Most people today don't think don't think in terms of equity anymore. Uh, you ask the average person what equity means, you know, and he thinks that's how much money he's got tied up in his home. You know, he doesn't understand the concept of equity and the golden rule, which is and and the golden rule is simply one case law application of the concept of equity. He doesn't understand that anymore. It hasn't been taught in the churches. And it hasn't been taught in most in most of, of the popular writings on the subject, you know, in the newspaper articles we read and things of that nature. People think it think of it as just an intellectual concept and an idea which has no real relevance or no real consequences for their own life. Well naturally it doesn't because everyone's rejected the absolutes. They've rejected equity. Now everything is relative. Now everything must be equalized, not equitable. And so you end up with a situation in which we, we see a continuous slide from the absolute to the relative, and in that slide, the opposition, non-Christian thought, often with the aid of many Christians, unknowingly, non-Christian thought systematically redefines all the terms of, of law. They redefine the terms of truth and everything else. On Monday, for example, it's illegal to murder. On Tuesday, there's extenuating circumstances. On Wednesday, there's certain psychological factors that must be taken into consideration by the court. On Thursday, the victim is accused of the crime. And on Friday, the judge hangs up his robes and goes fishing because it's legal to murder. And that's, that's in a nutshell, the, the way in which once you reject the absolutes of God as binding on all men, including myself as well as, as my neighbor, and you begin to abandon the concept of equity, and just as you slide from the absolute to that which is relative, and you end up in a situation in which everything is valid. And that's what we've got now. Uh, I've, I've seen time and again on these television talk shows, on uh, the late-night news programs uh, where they're interviewing people, I see more and more and more the idea in the media that the accepted left-wing liberal view is the true view and the only one that any sane man would possibly consider. Anyone else who denies that perspective is, of course, asserting, uh, 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 asserting absolutes. And those we all know, as far as the liberal media is concerned, are no longer accepted. The traditional values, those are old hat and passe. We are now new and modern, and we see law and things of this nature in a very different light. And you see, for example, um, uh, deliberate, deliberate manipulation of 
quotations and statements that are being made by the media. As far as I'm concerned, the courts really don't exist anymore. The media decides the cases long before the courts ever deal with it. I think this would be a, an appropriate time to call attention to a book written 40-some years ago. Uh, John Hallowell, The Decline of Liberalism as an Ideology, and the subtitle goes on to say that it is with reference to National Socialist Germany. And it was written, I think, in the early days of the war, or just before the war. The book is an extremely important one, which disappeared almost without attention, unfortunately. But it calls attention to something that uh, you touched on, John. It used to be that uh, confronted with some problem, men would say, well, God says thus and so, or those who are not Christian would say, according to the laws of nature, thus and so should mm -hmm. follow. Now, whether it's in a personal discussion or a talk show or on television, it's, well, I think the individual has replaced God in any natural law that uh, men may once have believed in. Hallowell, in his book, traced the rise of liberalism. Liberalism uh, broke with Christianity, but it still had a Christian hangover. And so it concerned itself with ideas of justice, which it felt uh, were a part of the universe, natural law in some sense. But very quickly, especially after Darwin, all that disappeared. And men began to replace God's law, natural law, with civil law, positive law. So that law was what the state said it was. So, uh, Hallowell concluded, and documenting it very carefully, carefully and meticulously, the liberal views of law and society prepared the way for Hitler because they removed anything in the way of content from the law except the will of the state. And as a result, National Socialism exploited precisely what all the liberals believed in. Moreover, one could say that uh, the mistake Hitler made as a true blue liberal, in fact a radical, he was a socialist, was in turning racist because his goal was to abolish Christianity and create a scientific socialist state. He had a city picked out, which was going to be rebuilt from the ground up to be the scientific center for the scientific high priests, from which scientific socialist planning would govern the nation and the future of the nation. So, to get back to Hallowell, 
he made clear that law, if it is denied a foundation in something transcendent to man and society, inevitably becomes what the Marxists have made of it, what the fascists and Nazis have made of it, and what we in this country, let me add, are making of it today. Well, this comes from uh, Mr. Marx, who was a classical scholar. He was trained, he studied, and he did his thesis on uh, ancient Greece and Rome. Now, Roman law was very famous, and people still refer to it. But what happened as the empire uh, continued and began to decline was that the forms were retained, but the essence was leached. And the law became an expression of class supremacy. And certain categories of Roman citizens were differently treated according to their position in the pecking order. Slaves, for instance, had no soul. They were not persons. So they had no rights whatever. We see the same uh, distortion of law arise in... in, uh, the Soviet Union, where people whose background is bourgeois or aristocratic, for instance, cannot be allowed into a higher university or school or learn a profession. They have to come from an origin of workers. This is in the Soviet law today. So in the name of eliminating hereditary position, they have changed whose heredity is important. (laughs) And the National Socialist courts did the same thing. The courts of Austria set up the quota system. The Austrian government set up a quota system. So many jobs in the government for Jews, for those of German origin, for those of Slavic origin, Hungarian, etc. And then, of course, an individual was no longer an individual but a representative of a group. We've gone, we're going down the same line, and we started it, of course, when we decided that the idea of equality before a law no longer applied to your money, so that people could be unequally taxed. The income tax law destroyed the idea of equality before law in American courts. Once your money could be unequally taxed, the fruits of your labor could be unequally taken away from you. Excellent point. Everything else could be unequally treated. And this is what we're now encountering in the courts. We have a different application of law traditionally against women than against men because presumably the courts have to protect women, the weaker vessel. However, some of this unequal treatment is retained in the days of rampant feminism. None of the laws requiring a male to uh, be responsible for the support of children have been relaxed, even though the feminists are demanding equal incomes or compensatory uh, salaries and so forth, equivalent salaries. Everywhere we look at the American law, we see the forms remain. The essence is being evaporated. Unequal treatment is now the earmark of American courts. I don't think we could say much worse. Yes. I think it's an exception, uh, an exception rather than a rule. 
Mark, any comment? No, only that uh, uh, one example of this em emphasis on, for instance, the the victims or the excuse me, the uh, criminals and criminal rights in in the courts is that the courts have made so many rules on on the police, even some of the uh, traditional advent advantages the police have had have become useless. For instance, now the police, when they bother to take fingerprints at the scene of a crime, if they think it's a serious enough crime to take fingerprints, they don't automatically check that unless they know, have a specific suspect in mind. They'll check those fingerprints with fingerprints on record. It's crime now is so widespread that they uh, they can't they can't be bothered checking into looking for a criminal unless they have a specific suspect in mind, and then they'll check the fingerprints they find at a scene to see whether they match that that uh, suspect. Would that be true even in the murder case? In a serious case, they might do it, but in a, in a for instance, a, a major robbery. Uh, I, I heard a case not long ago where they they just there's too much they can't they can't yes. handle it all, so they won't bother unless they have a specific. And of course, many many cases they won't bother to take fingerprints. If somebody steals your television set, you know you can give them the information on the set, and if it had your social security number or serial number that you recorded and they'll file a report. But very often, and this is even more true in a big city such as New York or San Francisco, they'll file a report, but uh, you and the police both know that, that it's going to end there at the report. One uh, high-ranking uh, police officer told me within the past two years that uh, counseling in a department uh, is sometimes now a very important task of superior officers and some have chaplains because uh, police officers are so often suicidal. They're so totally discouraged and frustrated and feel so hopeless. John? Well, I was, I was, there was a thing that Otto was talking about there in, in the law um, uh, that really comes out in the amendment to the Constitution that deals with taxes and the change in the content of the law. And this is, I remember several years ago, uh, many years ago, uh, I was sitting down reading uh, the Institutes of Biblical Law. This is one of the first times I had read the book. And I was reading it in a restaurant in Los Angeles, uh, a little coffee shop where I used to go and hide out for a while and, and study for two or three hours. And uh, there were a couple of guys that used to come in there regularly and sit down and always interested in what, what, what the actor fellow had to read that day and all that stuff because most of the titles they couldn't even pronounce, much less understand. And anyhow, they sit down, they saw this Institutes of Biblical Law, and oh, right away the hackles went up on their neck, you know. And they started trying to find reasons and excuses and justification for denying the validity of biblical law, the excuses. And uh, one of the 
principal arguments that this one gentleman made is an argument that I've heard time and again from many people is, well, the biblical law is all right, but it's, it's so negative. I mean, you know, I just can't stand all that, those thou shalt nots and stuff like that. And I got to thinking about that. And it occurred to me that those people who make that statement don't understand the relationship between law and the meaning of words and grammar. And one illustration of that is in the Constitution. If you compare the first and sixteenth amendments, all right. In the first amendment, it says Congress shall make no law respecting the establishment of religion nor the free exercise thereof, and so on. It's stated in the negative, which places limitations upon the government. You see, whereas the the amendment on taxation says Congress shall have power. It's stated in the positive, and therefore grants power to the government. And the first is negative, the second is positive. The first limits government, the second grants power and gives virtually no limit to government. And just that subtle change, that fundamental difference, when people see biblical law as negative and for that reason should be re should reject it, they don't understand the obvious implications of their idea when applied to their own law. And now, as Marx ins uh, insisted and as Otto pointed out, you break the back of the middle class through progressive taxation in which all people are treated differently. Why, the next thing you know, the the, the entire core of law must, must go down the table. Yes. Uh, were you going to comment? Yes, I was. I think John has put his finger on a very, very important point. One of the causes of the English Revolution, the real revolution under Cromwell, not the false revolution that they talk about today, was precisely on that question. What <coughs> Elizabeth did, what... Uh, Henry did first, and then Elizabeth, and then James I, and finally uh, uh, Charles I, was that the king appointed agents to whom he delegated his power. So you had the proposition, which uh, we have here in the United States. For instance, we have a sort of a Senate hearing or a House hearing in which they operate like a high commission. They ask you questions, and you're not, your lawyer is not allowed to answer for you or defend you. And you are not being charged with anything, but you must answer all the questions under pain of penalty, contempt of court or contempt of uh, Senate, rather, or the House. And you can be ruined by the publicity of the hearing, but it's not considered a trial. So you can be punished, you have no limited right of self-defense, and yet it's not a trial because it's only a hearing. It may even be televised. And it may even, oh yes, the publicity. It's a lynch thing. Uh, you can be hung up. However, then when the Congress is finished with you, the various agencies of the government can come after you. The SEC, the IRS. Uh, the ICC, uh, you name them, and each one of whom can go after you on the basis of testimony that you've been forced to give exactly. in, uh, to the Congress. Now, in the 17th century, the argument was that the king could not delegate his powers because there is only one king. 
And if every agency of the government can come after you on the same body of uh, charges, each one claiming the right of the king, you are violating an essential protection, an essential privilege, which the English had to buy with their blood. And that's called uh, delegated powers. And part of the purpose of the American Constitution was to stop the king from doing that. You recall in the Declaration of Independence, they said he has sent his agents and set up agencies exactly. and commissions to harass the people. So this was one of the things that the Americans broke with the crown on because they wanted the rights of Englishmen not to have multiple powers of the king, agents of the king, operating as though they were king. Each one of the agents, in other words, has to be limited. And what we did is that we've opened the gates to unlimited delegation of power. The checks and balances have failed us, and most striking of all, the courts have failed to intervene. The courts have never ruled on the constitutionality of the agencies created by Congress who administer, who first formulate their own law, their own regulations, then ad administer those regulations, and then rule on the complaints against those regulations. Well, I think, Otto, I think that one of the keys to turning this entire situation, situation around is really very fundamental and very basic and very simple. Right now, the average person has no fundamental concept of law. What is its nature? Okay. The concept of law in the Western world was originally Judeo-Christian. Actually, uh, Old Testament law and New Testament law. And out of that developed a body of thought which was very fundamental and very simple in terms of law. That body of thought was taught by the Christian leadership. And when that Christian leadership then went out into the world, it sought to put that body of law to work in various ways. I think that the, the greatest single antidote to the tyranny of, of the United States Supreme Court and the lower courts, to the tyranny of governments, to the tyranny of, of, of special interest groups that are manipulating billions and billions of our tax dollars with and with, without our consent. I think the key to that is if the Christian pastors in America go back to teaching the nature of law from biblical case law. If they, if, if they just did one sermon a month on the nature of biblical law, I think that, that more than anything else would tell the average person and, and provide the average person with the ability to go into Scripture and find that authoritative ground for what he should support and assert, I think that would go do more towards restoring, for example, a, 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 an equitable tax system. I think that would do more to checking the power of judges than you can possibly imagine because then when a judge ruled incorrectly, the people would then know instantaneously that he did wrong. They wouldn't have to have the media tell them and interpret it for them, you see. Right now we have a major movement going on in California to uh, throw out um, 
Supreme Court justices in California that are coming up for election next year. Uh, uh, Rose Bird, for example, um, and uh, three or four uh, associates of hers. They're called Rosie and the Supremes by the <laughs> by the <laughs> by the by her enemies, and uh, because they've danced around all the issues and 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 sang a different tune, and uh, that move is coming about because the media can no longer hide the liberal movement in terms of the California State Supreme Court. I have over on my desk over there right now, I have three Supreme Court cases in which uh, Rosie and the Supremes have ruled. And I have to tell you, the as a layman, even I can see the deceit and the contradictions and the arbitrary rulings, the arbitrary ideas in these Supreme Court rulings. I have the, the complete text of the opinions. And it's and it's and it's it's ridiculous. It's ludicrous. You wouldn't buy a car on the same laws and principles that the Supreme Court is applying to the interpretation of the law. Uh, I'd like to interject something here. Uh, some very interesting comments have been made with regard to the Sixteenth Amendment, the income tax uh, amendment. As you pointed out. Uh, John, there are no restricting clauses in that amendment. In terms of that amendment today, the country could be turned Marxist overnight because Congress has the right to expropriate all your income. It can do what uh, several European countries have done, raise the income tax to 120% to compel you to liquidate all your assets and then to step in and take them. This is not all. In all the church and state trials I'm involved in, the 16th Amendment from time to time comes in. For this reason, if you make out a will... The last codicil you add to that will governs all that precedes it, so that everything that is uh, written, for example, in a will you made out last year, and then you add a paragraph this year, that paragraph governs what precedes it. Now, in terms of this premise... Federal and state attorneys are arguing, and attorney generals as well, including the man who is presently governor of California when he was attorney general. So this type of argument is common to conservatives and liberals when it suits them. But the First Amendment is now of historical interest only, by and large. Because the First Amendment, dealing with the freedom of press and freedom of religion, must be read in terms of the 16th. And the 16th does not give any constitutional exemption to churches. Only a statutory exemption exists state by state and in terms of what the IRS and or Congress 
chooses to grant with regard to churches. So that at any time, without any constitutional change in terms of the 16th Amendment, the argument reads, the churches can be taxed, all tax-exempt groups can be taxed, they can be dealt with by the IRS as it chooses. Now, I'm not saying this argument has been bought 100% by the courts because the courts usually uh, nibble at a constitutional provision. But I do know that this type of decision is coming in whereby the constitutional protection for the freedom of religion is increasingly eliminated and it is recognized only as a statutory uh, exemption. This is very dangerous, but it is a growing factor and it needs to be recognized. And when a church is struggling financially, when a church is struggling financially, I mean, it really intimidates them you know, to realize that they could lose their tax-exempt status if they don't cooperate with the IRS and with these various other organizations. When that's, because that's, that intimidates thousands of churches and pastors that don't know any different. Mm -hmm. Well, everybody is intimidated by the uh, federal government. Uh, there isn't a man in the United States or a woman of any capacity whatever who isn't afraid of the government. Uh, the people of the United States are afraid of the government. And, of course, we are also tremendously overgoverned. We have not only 50 states with courts of law and so on, and authorities and police and so on, but we have cities, towns, villages, and counties. So we have a multiple uh, structure here. And it's an open secret that we are treated differently in the courts as we are treated differently in the media as we are treated differently by the government depending upon who we are if you are a member of a popular minority and we have to make a distinction because everyone in the united states is a member of a minority mm -hmm. there is no overall majority in the country if you are a member of a popular minority you get differently treated by the judges than if you are not if you, uh, it's almost as though it's somewhat like the Soviet. If you appear as the sort of an image, a wasp image of what they consider the American aristocrat, you're not going to get as good a treatment as if you come from the ghetto. So discrimination has not been changed. It's simply shifted targets. The Watergate people all went to the penitentiary. And these were men who had never broken the law before. There isn't a person in the ghetto who would be sent to the penitentiary on this first offense. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And uh, we could extend this. Now, this is... Uh, I, I, I keep coming back to it because it arouses a sense of indignation. Inequality of treatment is the essence of injustice. Yes. Well, when you replace equity with equality, that must happen, because the judge then becomes the great equalizer. 
He gives the poor a break by not sending them to jail on the, for a first offense, but he punishes the wealthy for being wealthy or famous or whatever. And of course, they must go to jail. And then he, but he never gives them the full extent of the law. That's if and they're, they're unpopular. Always, yeah. If they're unpopular and yes. wealthy. Now, mm -hmm. if they're popular and wealthy, he serves community service. Exactly. When Mrs. Mm -hmm. Ferraro's husband was sentenced to community service, he was going to counsel people on real estate matters, and he was convicted. He was convicted of breaking the law on real estate matters. He's going to now tell them how to either beat the law or how not to get caught, or how he's a lawbreaker, then going to counsel others. I, that, that makes, I guess, perfect sense to some judge somewhere. But uh, There's... Someone on our mailing list, this unequal treatment, uh, he got hit hard with it because he was applying to a dental school for admission, one of the best dental schools in the country, and uh, he had top grades, and the whole question, of course, was that uh, this was at the peak of the influx of minority groups. Uh, his parentage was quite unusual, half Cuban, and he was born in Cuba, and the other half English. Sad to relate, uh, this young man uh, wound up looking like a Nordic hero. <laughs> so he was going to get into the school on the basis of his Hispanic background. But when they looked at him, they <laughs> accused him of fraud and dropped him. <laughs> that years ago, well, uh, one of my grandmothers was part Indian and it crossed my mind as to whether I should register myself as a Native American or not. <laughs> <laughs> well, on some reservations, you would qualify. <laughs> it doesn't take much blood. No. Blood Isn't that ridiculous? Yes. So we have a law for every group. We have, uh, we're, we're at the Austro-Hungarian stage with overtones of Marxism. Where do we go from here? What could be done about it? The courts, the federal courts are beyond reach. Uh, the only federal judges, to my knowledge, that have ever been impeached and removed have been impeached and removed for com commercial corruption. Mm -hmm. There is no general acceptance of the idea of moral or intellectual corruption. We have all sorts of officials in office who are guilty of public lies, and there's no indignation about that. Well, I believe short of Christianizing the public and law, there is no answer. There's no answer except Christianity. Yes. Amen. Our time is very limited. Uh, are there any last words for today? Uh, let's start with you, Mark. Anything to say? I think we've pretty much uh, covered the subject. I'd reiterate what I said before. The breakdown of law is part of our breakdown in culture, which is 
at its root our rejection of our Christian heritage. And um, short of revival, I can't see. Uh, I can't see uh, a means out. We've got to change people and their attitude towards law and their attitudes towards government before we really get at the root of the problem. I would just take that one step further. I think the revival has to be a revival of Christian learning. Mm -hmm. Yes. A revival of Christian learning uh, with uh, proper emphasis given to the law. And uh, the law isn't difficult to understand. There's very few principles that you have to understand in their, in their basic simplicity. They're all taught in the scriptures. Um, unfortunately, they're not taught in the churches. Uh, I would agree there that, that just briefly... I was at a conference recently, and I believe I was the only non-lawyer there. The other speakers, recently, I mean within the past year. One came from uh, Protestant law school, another from the Catholic. And they were the two farthest out of the speakers. I couldn't understand why they even claimed to be Christian or wanted any part in a Christian conference on law. That's the tragedy. We not only have to re-Christianize the United States, but the churches yes, and their institutions. Yes, yes, I was going to say something of the same thing. The law right now is being used as an anti-Christian instrument. The ACLU is widely described as the anti-Christian uh, legal union or something mm -hmm. of that sort. But the Christian clergy is helping its enemies. Yes. Yeah. I find it very interesting that the one thing that everyone remembers about Chalcedon after they've read the literature for a while and, and heard some of the speakers is the emphasis on the law. And that is one of the principal reasons why Chalcedon has been so successful in terms of its impact on leadership. Well, it's introduced the, the subject of retribution. Exactly. And, 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 but, it's, but in a general sense, it's reintroduced the binding validity of God's law, and that has made Chalcedon a double threat in the sense that, A, it intimidates an awful lot of people, and B, the more positive aspect is it gives an awful lot of people hope because they, they again can see the validity of biblical law because of Chalcedon's teaching. I'd rather say that it enlightens rather than intimidates. <laughs> <laughs> Any last words here now? If not, thank you all for listening. Uh, as always, we're happy to consider possible subjects. Uh, just let us know what you'd like to have us as a group deal with. We don't promise we'll deal with it because we don't feel we're competent in every field. And there are some that... Don't uh, say that. <laughs> no, I don't know anyone here who's a botanist, so I think that's one field. Botany and zoology is one field we don't know anything about. <laughs> then there are some subjects we're weary of talking about also. <laughs> a lot of those. <laughs> yes. Well, thank you all for listening, and God bless you. <laughs>